Okay, well, we are in the second week of this series we started last week. It's called Patterns That Change Us. And if you're just kind of tuned in with us, uh, what we're talking about, the topic that we are navigating through in this series is we're actually talking about change. And more specifically, we're talking about how do you change? How do we change? Can people really change? And that's actually what we're taking some time to think about. More specifically as well, we're also kind of looking not just at the topic of change, but what Jesus teaches about change, looking at what does Jesus teach about the process of transformation and about how that takes place. And like I said, this is a conversation we started last week. And so if you happen to miss last week's talk or this is kind of your first week kind of getting settled in here, I would really encourage you, by the way, to go back and listen to or watch last week's message. You can get that on our app or a podcast on our website. And the reason uh, I think that's so important is because last week we laid, I think, just a critical foundation to this whole series. And so I think if you really want to kind of get the heartbeat and the central thrust of what we're trying to communicate and what we're aiming at through this series, you might want to go back and listen to last week. But again, if you missed last week, just kind of in a nutshell, here's what we we found out. We said uh, that for those of us who follow Jesus, and of course, I know that not everyone in this room today follows Jesus. Some of you are in the process of maybe exploring Christianity and kind of exploring the things of Christ. But we said, for those of us who follow Jesus, we said that it is God's desire, it is God's desire that we transform. It is God's desire that we change. And and we talked about this last week, and we said the change that God desires of us is that he wants us to increasingly act like, think like, and be motivated like Jesus Christ. That the transformation that God is after in our life, for those of us who follow him, is he wants us to look more like Christ. He wants the life of Jesus to be lived out in and through us. He wants us to bear the fruit of Christ. And so we talked about this last week, and it's interesting, this whole idea of of God desiring us to look more and more like Jesus is actually a common thread you're gonna see all throughout the Bible. And so just to give you like a quick snapshot of what that looks like, here's just a few examples. So in the Bible, for example, the Bible's gonna say that those of us who follow Christ in Ephesians 5, that God's desire is that we would love like Jesus loved. And so the Bible's gonna tell us that it's God's desire for those who follow him that we would be changed and transformed in our love that our love would increasingly look more and more like the love of Jesus, which if you think about it, that is a very extreme love. Uh, Jesus displays an unearthly love. It's a love that loves his enemies. It's a love that loves those who persecute him. And the Bible's gonna tell us God wants us to change and transform in these ways. Uh, The Bible's gonna tell us in Ephesians chapter four that God wants us to forgive as Jesus forgives. God wants us to transform in our forgiveness. He wants us to become people who, who forgive and act in forgiveness in the same way that Jesus exemplified that. And again, that's a tall order because when you look at Jesus' forgiveness, you realize that he exhibited a a type of forgiveness that is just not of this world, a forgiveness where he was able to forgive even those who crucified him. Uh, The Bible's gonna tell us that God wants us to be humble like Jesus was humble. That's what Philippians 2 is gonna say. Endure hardship like Jesus endured hardship is what 1 Peter 4 says. To be generous is like Jesus is generous. To serve like Jesus served. To have the same mindset as Christ. And this is just a sample. I could give you a more extensive list of how in the Bible you see that it's God's desire that those of us who follow him 
act like, think like, and are motivated like Jesus more and more in our lives. Now, here's, here's my guess. My guess is if you are a person that follows Christ and you look at a list like this, this probably doesn't surprise you. You probably maybe already know this. But I think, if you're anything like me, when I look at a list like this, it actually causes me to ask a really honest question. So if I'm just being honest, here's the question that I ask when I look at this list. I look at this and I think to myself, okay, that, that makes sense. That's nice. That's good. That makes sense. But, but like, is that really possible? Like, is that really possible that I, that me, that I can actually love like, forgive like, be humble like, endure hardship like, be generous like, serve like, and think like Jesus. Like, is that really possible? Because let's be honest, he's Jesus. He's the son of God. He's sinless and he's flawless and I'm me. And so like, is this, is this honestly, is this, is this like an unrealistic expectation? Like, isn't this just more like a, the gold standard that none of us are actually going to achieve? And Jesus is just an excellent model of these things. But honestly, God knows that none of us can actually ever do this. And so really, it's just kind of a list of unrealistic expectations. I think that many of us might feel that. In fact, for some of you, if you're followers of Jesus in this room, my guess is if I asked you, if I said, hey, how are you doing on this? How are you doing on loving like Jesus, forgiving like Jesus? My guess is that some of you immediately feel a sense of defeat. And you might think to yourself, oh, man, I'm trying, I'm trying. But I think that for a lot of us, what we feel is as hard as we try, it seems like it is so hard to keep it up. It is so hard to keep it up. And it makes us wonder, is real transformation, is this kind of change actually possible? Is it actually possible? And so in this series, what we're trying to say is this. We're saying that, that this type of change, the kind of change that God desires for us to be like, act like, think like Jesus, that it actually is possible. That it actually is possible. Not perfectly, but increasingly. That it's possible for us to change and it's possible for us to transform. But what we said last week, and this is why last week is so important, is we said that oftentimes the way that we go about trying to pursue that change is we go about it all wrong. And so the way we go about trying to evoke this change is we try to modify our behavior. We try, we try harder to become these things. And we said we actually go about it all wrong. And so the question then is, well, then how do we go about pursuing this kind of change that God desires for us? And that's what we talked about last week. And that's what we're talking about in this series. And so I thought that this week, as we kind of think about like, what is the right way to go about this change in our lives? I thought that maybe I'd give you another helpful uh, illustration to kind of illustrate what we're trying to say in this series. So last week we talked all about this, but this week I just wanna give you kind of a fresh illustration to kind of explain again what we're trying to talk through in this series. So this is an illustration that I adapted a little bit from a guy named Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Spirit of Disciplines. I talked about it last week. I highly recommend this book to you, but he uses this illustration and I, I kind of adapted it uh, to make it kind of a more modern thing. But I want you just to, for a moment, think with me for a second about athletes, okay? So if you think about a professional athlete, someone who is at the top of their game, one of the things that you'll notice about a professional athlete that a lot of us know is that professional athletes, the guys who are at the top of the game, they oftentimes have signature moves. 
and they'll have signature nuances about them that make them really fun to watch and that make them a unique player. So I was thinking about this. The first guy that came to my mind, at least for me, was I thought about Michael Jordan, right? So you think about MJ. And if you think about him, I know I kind of grew up watching him play. Some of you maybe grew up watching this guy play. And, And the thing about him is he has some signature moves. He has some nuances about him that make him Michael Jordan. And so his fadeaway shot is iconic, right? His hang time, there's a reason he's called Air Jordan. And one of the things about Michael Jordan that always comes to my mind when I think about him, and the reason I picked this picture is because if you guys ever watched him play, you might remember he always had his tongue hanging out of his mouth. You guys remember this about watching Mike? He always had his tongue hanging out of his mouth. And it's funny because I remember when I was a kid and and my friends and I would go play basketball um, at the park or whatever, we used to all have our tongues hanging out of our mouth. And the reason we would do that is because we wanted to be like Mike. And so we would try to, he inspired us. And so we would try to impersonate him and we would try to do his moves and we'd try to do his fadeaway and we would try to do, you know, his moves in the air or whatever it was. And we would emulate those things because he was just so cool. Or maybe you think about maybe a little bit more of a modern example. You think about a LeBron James, right? So before LeBron went to the dark side and uh, moved to Los Angeles, when he was here in Cleveland, You guys might remember one of his signature moves, one of his signature iconic moves was that before a game, he would do the chalk toss. You guys remember that? He'd grab the the chalk, he'd throw it up in the air, and everyone would go nuts, and then he would go on the court, and he would do what only LeBron could do, and he would just, like, dominate the game. And it was so inspiring to watch him do this. I actually remember when, uh, when the Cavs were in the finals years ago, my son and I would go out into the back patio, and we have a little Tykes basketball hoop, and we would play pig. And I remember whenever I would win at playing pig, I would grab some mulch and I would do the chalk toss. And it's like, well, why would I do that? It's because, man, LeBron, right? It was LeBron. He's inspiring. I love watching this guy play. He's incredible on the court. But listen, here's what all of us know. Here's what every single one of us know. That just because you impersonate these guys... That just because you do the chalk toss or you stick your tongue out or you can do a fadeaway shot or you, you know, can pose like those guys pose, that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to perform like them. It doesn't mean that you are going to be the same level of athlete that they are, right? We all know this. Like if you and I were to play basketball, which by the way would just be a joke. If you ever see me play basketball, it's just not pretty, right? But if we were to do that, just because I stuck my tongue out or just because I wore Air Jordans wouldn't mean that I could have the ability to play the game like Jordan plays the game. And why is that? Well, all of us know it's for a couple reasons. Well, first off, it's because I don't have the DNA, right? It is pretty clear when you look at me I am not genetically built to play the game of basketball. I have never had anyone look at me and say, huh, you must be a basketball player. Never happened in my life before, right? So I'm not genetically built to play the game. But the other reason, and maybe the more important reason, is this. I haven't adopted the overall pattern of life that these guys have adopted. The reason that these guys are so amazing on the court is because they have adopted a certain lifestyle that goes beyond the court. Right? It is a pattern of living that includes things like practice, that includes diet, that includes training, that includes shooting the same shot over and over again so that it's made accessible to them when they're on the court. Now, listen, here, here's the whole thing. If you can get your head around that illustration, I, I think what the Bible is going to tell us is that for many of us, we look at the life of Jesus and we see that Jesus does incredible things on the court of life, right? Right? Jesus is able to forgive people like we've never seen before. 
He is able to love people like we've never seen before. He is able to serve people like we've never witnessed another human being serve in the entirety of his life. And many of us are inspired by that and we try to go and do the same thing that Jesus did. And we find that we can't keep it up. And why is that? Well, could it be, could it be because we're not adopting Jesus' overall pattern of life, that we don't have accessible to us in the moment the, the, the ability to do the things that Jesus did because we're not living the way that Jesus lived. This is how Dallas Willard puts it in his excellent book, like I mentioned before, The Spirit of Disciplines. He says, those exquisite responses that we see, the amazing timing and strength such an athlete displays aren't produced and maintained by the short hours of the game itself. They are available to the athlete for those short and all-important hours, look at this, because of a daily regimen that nobody sees. That's why. Then he goes on, he says this. He says, and, and, and in this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke of following Jesus. The secret involves living as he lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle, following in his steps, cannot be equated with behaving as he did when he was on the spot, or we could say on the court. He goes on, to live as Christ lived is to live as he did in all of his life. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists of loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone around us does. So I think what Dallas Willard is saying here, by the way, is the same thing, the same thing that the Bible tells us in the book of 1 John. And so in 1 John, this is actually kind of the theme verse for this whole series. We looked at it last week. In 1 John, John actually says this. He says, by this, we know that we are in Christ. Whoever says that he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way that he walked. And last week we talked about this. We said that when the Bible says walk in the same way that Jesus walked, literally in the Greek language, that means to follow the way of Jesus. Or get this, here's what it means. It means to pattern your life after the way that Jesus lived his life. Here's what we believe with all of our heart here at the Medina East Campus. We believe that Jesus didn't simply come just to give his life for us. We believe that Jesus Christ also came to show us how to live. That he gave us a pattern, a pattern of how to live our lives that would change us. So here's what I want you to hear me say. If you're a follower of Christ in this room, and again, I know not everyone in this room is a follower of Christ. But if you are a follower of Jesus in this room, here's what I want you to hear me say. You have the DNA to become like Christ. You do, not in and of yourself. The Bible's gonna tell us that when you surrender your life to Jesus, that what happens is you're born again and that you are born into God's family and you now have the Holy Spirit of God within you. You have the DNA to become like Jesus. Now, not perfectly, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying you can be sinless. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is God has given you the ability to become more like Christ. Now, now the question is this. You have the DNA if you're a follower of Christ, but do you have the pattern? Do you have, the, his, do you have his lifestyle? And so that's what we're doing in this series. In this series, we're looking at these patterns that were in Jesus. How did Jesus live his life and how do we follow him? in those patterns. And so this week, we're gonna look at one of the first patterns uh, uh, that we see within Jesus's life. And this is what we're gonna kind of look at today is this pattern of solitude and community. And so when you look at the life of Jesus, what you're gonna see is that there are certain patterns that he would have lived by. One of the patterns we see is this one right here, that Jesus practiced a pattern of solitude and community, solitude and community. By the way, in all of these patterns, you're gonna notice they're all symbiotic and they're all symmetrical. 
And so they're almost like opposites of each other in some way. They're, they're complementary in that they are symmetrical and symbiotic. And so solitude and community. So this week, we're going to talk about solitude. And next week, we're going to talk about the other side of it. We're going to talk about community. All right, so here's what I want to do with the rest of the short time that we have remaining. Is I want to just think through two questions. Just two questions I want to answer. And here they are. Number one, I want to think through how did Jesus practice this in his life? So solitude. How did this pattern show up in Jesus' life? That's the first question. And then the second question is, and as practical as we know how to get, I mean as practical as I can get, how do you do this? How do you put this pattern in your life? How do we do that together? Okay, so those two questions. So let's start at the top. Let's think about this. How did Jesus do this? Okay, so Jesus had a pattern in his life of solitude. How did that show up in his life? So for this, I want to encourage you to grab your Bible, and I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Luke 4. Luke chapter 4 is where I'm going to ask you to turn with me, and we're going to go uh, there. That's page 717, by the way, in the Bibles that we have under the chairs. And so if you didn't bring a Bible with you, feel free to use one of those Bibles and uh, 717. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those. You can have it. We'd love for you to, to have a Bible that you can call your own. So uh, Luke 4. And as you're finding Luke 4, I'm just going to tell you, we're going to do something a little different than we typically do here at the Medina campus. So usually uh, at our church, we will open our Bibles to one passage of Scripture, and we will just stay there the whole time. And we'll kind of dig at and look at one passage of the Bible. But today, because I'm trying to show you a pattern in Jesus' life, we're actually going to survey a little bit. We're going to go through the Gospel of Luke. And I'm actually going to have you look at maybe five or six different passages and show you how this pattern emerges. Now, again, the reason I had you turn to Luke, so some of you might know there's four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are all first century eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And the reason I'm taking you to Luke is because all of the Gospels talk about this pattern in Jesus' life, but Luke, above any of the Gospels, goes out of his way to express this pattern in Christ's life, the pattern of solitude. So let's start off, chapter 4, verse 1. I'll read it to you, and then I'll explain a little bit. So here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan after he was baptized, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. All right, so let me just kind of summarize what's going on here. So in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about the Christmas story. So that's Jesus' birth and the events surrounding Jesus' birth. And then the Bible doesn't really tell us a whole lot about Jesus' upbringing. As far as we know, Jesus grew up in relative obscurity. But what we find is interesting is the Bible says that when Jesus launches his ministry... The first thing he does is he gets baptized. And then after he's baptized, the Bible tells us that immediately following that, Jesus goes into a period of 40 days of solitude in the wilderness. 40 days of solitude in the wilderness. Now, that might seem like a small little weird detail to you, but I think it is very, very significant, and it's not something that we should overlook. All of the gospel writers tell us this. I just want you to think about this for a minute. Before Jesus ever preaches a sermon... Before Jesus ever heals a person, helps a person, before Jesus does anything in his ministry, the Bible tells us that first, he spends a period of 40 days in solitude. He has an extended period of time in solitude before he launches. And I think, like I said, I think that that is not something that should be overlooked. 
Because the Bible is telling us that before Jesus began a life-changing, future-altering movement, before he uttered the most unconventional words of wisdom that turned the world upside down, that first he began in a period of solitude. And this actually begins the pattern that we see in Jesus' life. And so I want you to notice, look at chapter four, uh, go down to verse 42. If you just look down at verse 42, here's what the Bible is going to say in verse 42. It says, at daybreak, just before, uh, uh, at daybreak, Jesus went out into a solitary place. And so again, Luke is trying to reveal something to us. So what happens is after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. The Bible says that he emerges, he begins to preach, he begins to heal, he begins to teach. And the Bible says that he amasses an incredible following. So there are crowds that are pressing in to hear Jesus teach and to hear Jesus talk. But the Bible tells us that even though Jesus is growing in popularity, that at daybreak, at daybreak, first thing in the morning, before anyone else is getting up, Jesus went out to a solitary place. And so, so again, Luke is trying to show us, this is something Jesus does. This is something Jesus does. Things are getting crazy, things are getting busy, but Jesus goes out and he finds a solitary place. Flip over, go to uh, Luke chapter five, flip over to the next page. I want you to notice something that this says. So the Bible says that Jesus continues to grow in popularity, People continue to press in to get their needs met from Jesus. And look what the Bible says. It said, the news about Jesus spread all the more. So he's getting more popular. The crowds of the people came to hear him and be healed of their sickness. So people were pressing in. Jesus was very busy. But notice verse 16. But Jesus often, often, Luke is telling us, this is something Jesus did a lot. He often withdrew to lonely places where he would pray. He would oftentimes go to lonely places where he would pray. And I want you to notice here in verse 15 and 16, you will notice that there's almost a rhythmic counterbalance. Do you see that? The Bible's like, Jesus is busy. Jesus was busy. Jesus had a lot to do. But, but, like in juxtaposition to what we just read, he often, often withdrew. He was intentional about doing it. It was a pattern that was in his life. Uh, flip over to Luke chapter 6. You're, you're going to see it again. Look at Luke chapter 6. The Bible says, one of those days, Jesus went up onto a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them who he also designated as apostles. Now, again, I think, man, I think this is so significant because the Bible is going to tell us that what happens in Luke chapter 6 is Jesus begins to, to get, some, uh, get some persecution. He begins to undergo persecution. And the Bible tells us the Pharisees start to plot how they're going to exterminate Jesus. And so what does Jesus do in, in the face of these, these threats? Well, the Bible tells us that he goes away, he spends all night in prayer, and the Bible says that after he spends all evening in prayer, that he emerges from that time with decisive clarity in what he needs to do next. Now, again, I don't think this is a coincidence that Luke is showing us this. Where does Jesus get the ability to make decisions? Where does he get the power and strength to know what to do next? And I think Luke is telling us that a big place that that comes from is it comes from solitude. He spends all night in prayer. I think this is huge. If you're a person that's trying to navigate to a really big decision in your life, where do you go to make those decisions? Well, look where Jesus went. The Bible says he spent all night in prayer before he did this. Check out Luke chapter 9 if you flip over a couple of pages. The Bible says, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done, and then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Now, here's what's interesting. In Luke, the Bible's going to tell us 
not simply that Jesus did this, but it's gonna tell us that in the middle of the gospel of Luke, that he started to train his disciples to do the same thing. And so the Bible says that Jesus, that he began to take his disciples with him and teach them this rhythm, teach them this pattern. And so this wasn't simply something Jesus did. This is something that he instructed his disciples to do as well. And so he would teach his disciples how to do ministry, and then he would teach them how to go off to be with Jesus by themselves in different places. If you bounce down, Luke chapter 9, verse 18, once Jesus was praying in a private spot with his disciples who were there with him. So again, you see he's training his disciples how to do this. You see it again in verse, uh, verse 28. About eight days after this, Jesus, after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him. He went up onto a mountainside to pray. You see, you guys get the point. You see it again in Luke chapter 11. In Luke 11, the Bible says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, his disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And I'm just telling you, I'm probably exasperating the point, but I think you see it, right? This is a pattern. Jesus would go out and he would spend time with his father. I'll show you one last passage and we'll just jump all the way to the end. In Luke 22... The Bible tells us that before Jesus goes to the cross, so before Jesus suffers and is crucified, the Bible tells us that Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him and he withdrew about a stone's throw away and he knelt down and he prayed. And so it's interesting, the Bible tells us where did Jesus get the strength and the power to endure what he endured on the cross? And the Bible tells us that before he went to the cross, that he didn't go and get like a solid eight hours of sleep the Bible says that before he did that, that he would have spent all night in prayer, that he would have spent it in solitude with his father. And what I think is also interesting is the Bible tells us that he, this, was, this was part of his usual kind of behavior. He did this as usual. And the term usual in the Greek language, it literally is the word ethos. And some of you guys may have heard the word ethos before. It's actually a word that we use quite a bit today. The word ethos literally means culture or it basically means a custom. And so what Luke is telling us is, this is something Jesus did a lot. This was his custom. This was his behavior. And so you can see it, right? You just see it. It's a pattern in Jesus's life. He came not just to, not just to give his life for us, but to show us how to live. And part of what he revealed to us is that this is a pattern that we're to put in our own lives as well. It's interesting, if you look at this pattern throughout the Bible, you will notice that there are three Greek words that are most commonly used to describe Jesus's time in, in when he would be alone. And here's the three Greek words. I think it's helpful. The Bible is gonna tell us that Jesus would do these three things, that he would go out, that he went out, and that's this Greek word right here, which I do not know how to pronounce. But this is the Greek word, to go out. It literally means to depart. It means to escape. It means to exit. So Jesus would leave he would get away. He would go, go away from the people. He would exit. What I want you to see there is this is very intentional. Like if Jesus was just waiting for an opportunity to show up to be by himself, it would never happen. The crowds were always pressing in on him. And so he had to be very intentional about this. So he went out. The Bible's gonna say that he would go to a solitary place, to a solitary place. Some of your translations will say lonely places or uninhabited places places. And the whole idea there is Jesus would go to a place where he could be alone. He would go to a place where he would be undistracted, where the demands would not be pressing upon him. And then the third thing we see in Jesus's pattern is that he would pray, that he would go, he would leave to a solitary place in order to pray. Now, what's interesting is the Greek word that's used for pray here, you can use a lot of different words for pray, but this word literally means to draw near. That's what it means. 
It means to be in the presence of. It means to draw close to something. And so in other words, here's what I want you to understand. Jesus' pattern is that he would leave, he would go to a quiet place, not just so that he could veg out, not just so that he could get some me time, not just so that he could binge watch him some Netflix. Like it wasn't like, Jesus wasn't like, I just need to get out of here and I need to get some me time. I had to get a massage and just clear my mind. Like that's not what was going on. Jesus would leave and he'd go to a quiet place for what purpose? So that he could be in the presence of God, so that he could be with his father. That's why he did those things. And so here, here's, here's what I believe. So this is what Jesus did. So it brings up the second question and that's this. Well, how do we do this then? Okay, so this is a pattern in Jesus' life. Jesus clearly relied on this and depended on this. So how do we do the same thing? And so like I said, now I want to get super practical. And I think that in light of what Jesus did, that there are three things that we should do. There's three things that we need. And here's the three things that we need. We need a time, we need a place, and we need a plan. So how, how is this pattern going to show up in your life? Well, here's the three things I think you need. I think you need a time, I think you need a place, and I think you need a plan. And like I said, you need a time. Jesus was intentional about this. This was something that Jesus pursued and he would go out and make this a reality in his life. I think that means we have to do the same thing. We gotta have a time for this. Jesus would seek out a place. He would go to solitary places. He would go to undistracted places where he could be with his father. And Jesus had a plan. His plan was to draw near to the presence of God. And so I think we need those same three things. And so here's what I wanna do. I just wanna talk, very, again, as practically as I know how to get, as practically as I know how to get. I just wanna talk about how do you do these things. So let's just start here. For each one of these, I wanna give you some considerations, some considerations, and then let me give you some cautions, okay? Considerations and cautions. So let's start with time. Time, you need a time. You gotta have a time. So some considerations as you're thinking about putting this pattern in your life. Here's the first one. I would say consideration number one is to seek to do this with some amount of uh, regularity. So as you're thinking about putting this pattern in your life, I think you need to pursue doing this with some amount of regularity. Now, you maybe have heard people talk about, like, you need to, you should spend time with God every day. Maybe you've heard people say that before. Uh, maybe you've heard pastors say that, teachers say that. Hey, you need to spend 20 minutes to a half an hour, 15 minutes to a half an hour with God every day where you just have some quiet time or devotional time. There's different words that people use for it. And so some of you might be saying, well, how frequently should I do this? Should I do it more than that? Should I do it less than that? What should it look like in my life? And so let me just give you a consideration on this. Um, if you look at scripture, what you're gonna find is it doesn't actually give us a hard, fast answer to that question. And so when you look at Jesus's pattern, the Bible is just gonna tell us Jesus did it often. Well, how often is often? Well, we don't know. The Bible just tells us he did it often. The Bible says it was his custom. The Bible says he, this was part of what he did as usual was he did that. So how frequently was that? Well, we don't know. We don't know. But let me ask you this question. If you were to talk to someone and you said, and you were to find out about them, that they work out often, what does that mean? Well, you're like, does that mean once a day? Does that mean a few times a week? Well, I don't know what it means, but basically it means often. It means usual. And so I think that you just wanna do this with some amount of regularity. I think that there's great wisdom in pursuing this and making an ambition to do this every day. I think that there's great wisdom in that. But I would just tell you, if you're a person that this pattern doesn't exist in your life at all right now, man, maybe just start once a week. Say, you know what, 20 minutes once a week, I'm gonna find a time and I'm gonna schedule this. There's going to be some regularity and maybe make an ambition to grow from there. So that's the first consideration. Here's the second one. 
Consider what time of day works best for you, given your life circumstances and your disposition, okay? Like, this is a really important consideration. So some people say, well, when should I do it? Like, when should I do this? Should I do it first thing in the morning? Should I do it, like, in the afternoon? Should I do it late at night? Uh, maybe you've heard teachers talk about this, pastors that say you should get up every morning and spend time with God first thing in the morning because that's what all spiritual holy people do. And I would just tell you, um, again, if you look at the scripture, you're gonna find that sometimes Jesus got up early in the morning and did this. Sometimes he stayed up late at night and did this. There is not a hard, fast rule to this. And so I would encourage you, know yourself. You know yourself. Pick a time that works best for your circumstance and your disposition. Some of you are not morning people. You're just not. And if you tried to say, you know what, I'm gonna get up at 5.30 and I'm gonna read, I'm gonna spend some time with God, that would last for all of one day. Because after that, you just wouldn't be able to get out of bed again. It's just not, for some of you, if you try to do it at nighttime, you know exactly how that's gonna pan out. You're gonna start praying, right? And you're gonna be like, dear God, I pray that, and you're just out cold, right? And that's just gonna happen because that's just who you are. That's how you're built. Know that about yourself. And I think you have to kind of build it around that. So know kind of how you're built and those type of things. I think that's important. Here's another consideration. I think you ought to put it on the calendar. I think you ought to put it on your calendar. Um, for, for some of us, I had mentioned this earlier, if you're like me, I have great intentions and I have a bad memory. And so for me, it's gotta be, it's gotta be on there. I gotta prioritize it, I gotta schedule it, it's gotta show up in some way. And so I would encourage you, because Jesus was so intentional in this, that you have to be intentional about it too. If you're waiting for this to find you, it's not going to find you. It's something that you have to go after and you have to pursue. And I think that Jesus uh, displayed that for us as well. So let me give you a caution with time. Just one caution I want you to consider. I think it's important that as you're thinking about uh, establishing this pattern in your life, be considerate of other relational obligations. And so I guess I'm speaking a little more specifically. If you're a person who has like, for example, if you have young kids or if you're in a place of life where you're married or whatever it might be, you just wanna be considerate of that. And so you wanna make sure that, um, that really you're being considerate of, am I sticking my spouse with a whole bunch of extra obligations because I'm doing this? I think that's an important thing to think through. I think that this right here, by the way, this is one of the best ways, spouses, that you can serve each other. One of the greatest ways, husbands, that you can serve your wives is that you can talk to them about, hey, can I help you find a time that you can do this? How can we arrange that? How can we set up, maybe once a week, I can set up a time where I watch the kids and you go so you can get some time with God or whatever that might be. And same thing with wives and husbands. I think it's an awesome way that we can help serve each other. So time, all right, there you go, time. Let's talk about the place. So you're like, okay, I got a time. I got a time on the counter. What, now where am I going? What's my place? All right, so some considerations on this one. Uh, go where you're least distracted. Okay, so you're gonna wanna go where you're least distracted. What you see in Jesus's life is that he would go to solitary places, that he would go to uninhabited places. I think the whole idea there is that Jesus went where he would not experience distractions, where there wouldn't be people pressing in, demands and those type of things. And so I would encourage you, go to a place where you are less likely to be distracted, where there's no demands on you where you're less likely to run into somebody who might detract you and derail you from being able to spend time with your father in heaven. I think that that's a, a good consideration. Here's another thing. Go where you most easily connect to God. I think it's important that you think this through. Where do you most easily connect to God? It's interesting. I was talking to our team about this this past week, and I was just asking our team. I was like, hey, what do you guys do? Tell me about what does your time with God look like when you get a chance to get solitary time? 
And a good amount of them, a good amount of the people on our team said, you know, for me, one of the places that I really feel like I am ushered into the presence of God is when I'm in nature. And so if I can, if I can be outside, if I can be, take a walk in a park, if I can see nature, it's just like, man, that just brings me into the presence of God so much faster. And so for some of them, they say, I, like, I, I like to go somewhere out in the, in the woods. It's awesome. Now, for some of you, you hear that and you're like, that sounds terrible to me. Some of you, let's just be honest, you are, you are what they call indoorsy, right? You don't like being outside. The whole time you're outside, you just think about like getting ticks and wondering when you can get inside. And if that's the case, that's fine. That's fine. Just know that about yourself. It's not like Jesus went onto a mountain. I need to go onto a mountain. Well, not necessarily, right? Maybe for you, the place that you connect with God the best is at Starbucks in the solitude of your noise-canceling headphones, with a journal and a Bible in front of you. And if that's the case, that's wonderful. That's why you just gotta know that about yourself. For some of you, what ushers you into the presence of God and helps you connect and stirs your affections for God is music. And I think that's the case, man, then maybe you wanna incorporate that, right? Maybe you wanna listen to whatever songs help remind you of God's faithfulness and usher you into the presence of God. So where do you connect most easily to God? Number three, get creative if you need to. Get creative. Now, I understand that sometimes there's different circumstances of life that make this very difficult for you to do. So, for example, if you're a single mom or if you're a single dad, if you're a single parent, you might be thinking, man, I would love to spend some time in the woods. I would love to go to Starbucks and get a cup of coffee. But if I left my three-year-old at home, I would be arrested because it's legal. And so I can't do that. And I understand that. And that's okay. And I think that there are some seasons of life where you just gotta be real creative about this, real creative. And so maybe for you, uh, maybe it means getting up a little earlier. And I mean, I'm just saying, if it's a big priority, I think it needs to be a big priority. Maybe it's staying up a little bit later. Maybe it's this, maybe it's, maybe it's closing the door and setting a timer and, and telling your children right now, it's time for me to get some time with Jesus. And so I'm gonna be in here for the next 20 minutes and the timer is set. And after that, I've told this story before. Um, maybe you guys have heard this about Susanna Wesley. So Susanna, Susanna Wesley was the mother of John and Charles Wesley, two spiritual giants in church history. And get this, Susanna Wesley had 19 kids, 19 kids. That woman had no free time to herself. And so what she would do uh, to, to make sure that she could practice this pattern in her life is she would put her apron over her head. And when she put her apron over her head, it was like the do not disturb sign to her kids. It was her way of saying, mom is meeting with Jesus right now so that you don't meet him later, right? <laughs> and so I'm getting in here right now and I'm gonna spend some time with the Lord in prayer. And so I'm saying, sometimes you gotta get creative. Sometimes you gotta get creative with it and that's okay, that's okay. So let me give you some cautions. Just one, one big caution I think is, uh, is your phone, honestly. I think it's just your phone. Uh, now, I want you to hear me. I'm not one of those guys that's like, your phone is from the devil. Like, I don't think that at all. I think phones are actually pretty awesome. I think that we live in a society where we are more connected than we've ever been, and that's an amazing thing. But we are more connected than we've ever been. At the same time, we are more distracted than we've ever been. Solitude is increasingly more difficult because of the connectivity that we experience. And so I think because of that, you just want to be considerate of this. Maybe for you, uh, if you're reading your Bible app or if you're doing a Bible plan, Maybe for you, what you need to do is put it on airplane mode. Uh, maybe for you, you need to consider going analog. It's keeping your phone in the car or something and just taking a, a hardback Bible and a journal with you and just kind of, kind of doing it that way. So some cautions there. Let's talk about a plan. 
So you might be thinking, okay, all right, so if I do this, if I do this, I got a time, I got a place, what am I supposed to do, like, when I'm there? Like, so how am I actually supposed to do this? Okay, so let me give you some stuff here. Remember, Jesus, his whole point was not to get me time. His whole point was to connect to the Father. Jesus' goal was not to detach from the world. It was to attach to the vine. And so you're going to want to have a plan of how you do this. So here's some considerations. Number one, I think a big consideration is, listen, there are great Christian books out there. There are great Christian podcasts. There are great, you know, sermon resources out there. But I'll just say this. There is no substitute for the Bible itself. I think that I think you could build a pretty strong case that the best thing you could do is actually spend time in the Bible, in the living word of God. Because again, if the whole point is to hear from God, then where else do you want to go but his word? And let that speak to you and those type of things. Now, some of you might be saying, yeah, but I'm new to the Bible. Like, where do I start? Where do I start in the Bible? Okay, well, here's a couple, couple helpful things. Maybe you want to utilize a reading plan. So one of the most beautiful things about the internet is there are a bazillion reading plans that are available to you. If you just Google Bible reading plans, you are going to be shocked at what you find. There are so many that are out there. And I would encourage you to do that. Here, here's a really helpful app I would point you to. An app that we use here at Grace a lot, we talk about, is called YouVersion, Y-O-U-Version. It's a Bible app. It's free. And on that, that uh, app, you have access to literally thousands of reading plans. And you can pick one and you can go through it. It will, it will chunk it out for you. It'll give you a daily or monthly regular kind of reading plan and those type of things. And let me just say this too. Um, this might sound like a little bit counterintuitive because I'm a pastor, but I would actually tell you that if you're new to the Bible, don't try to read the whole Bible in a year. Don't start there. Because what that usually amounts to is eight, about eight chapters a day. And so if you miss a day, that means you gotta read like 16 chapters the next day. I'm just saying baby steps, baby steps. Maybe you just wanna start by reading through some of the gospels, like the gospel of John or something like that. It might be a really great place for you to start. version is awesome. Some of you are like, I don't like to read. version will read itself to you. The Bible will read itself to you. No excuses. All right, so, so another, another really helpful um, resource, if you go to the Grace Church app, if you go to the Grace Church app, and this is what the app looks like when you open it up. If you click on Medina East, it'll take you here. You will see that there's a reading plan there. It's a very helpful little 100-day reading plan. The other thing is you'll notice this week we have something called Cultivating a Private Space here. And there's a resource right here that will actually give you a blueprint for what you could do in this time. It's a suggestion. It's just we're just trying to help you make this a pattern in your life. By the way, if you're not a tech person or you don't have the app, you can get a hard copy of this at our Welcome Center. I think you get the idea. We're just trying to equip you. We're trying to say, man, this is a pattern worth fighting for in your life because we see it in Jesus as well. All right, uh, journal your thoughts and prayers. Some people have found that journaling is incredibly helpful. Um, I know that, uh, that for me, uh, I have a journal. I'll write my prayers in sometimes. It is so cool to look back at what I was praying for six months ago and just see God's faithfulness and praise him for what he's done because like I said, I just forget. I just forget. And so it's neat to see that. So some considerations. Here's some, uh, some cautions. Um, don't simply make this about talking to God, but make sure you're creating space to hear from God. So getting time with, with spending time in solitude with God, there's a temptation sometimes to make this all about me telling God what I think and what I feel and what I want. And that's good. That's good. But I would say that this is also about you hearing from God. 
And so create space to, to read his word, to hear what he has to say and think about it. And maybe even create some space for silence to say for the next five minutes, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just gonna ask you to speak to me. And I just tell you, when you do that, you'll find incredible, I think it's incredible what five minutes of silence can do in a person's life and what you'll hear from God. So that's, that's important. Here's the second thing. Don't read to get through the text, but, but uh, for the text to get through to you. I think one of the big cautions about a reading plan is that sometimes you can get so committed to completing the plan that you're not even comprehending what you're reading. And that's not the point of this. Uh, the point of this is not to get through the text. It's for the text to get through to you. And so be okay with slowing down. Be okay with not getting through as much if you need to. A, a big recommendation I give to people on this is maybe consider this. Maybe consider reading a verse, thinking and praying about that verse, and then trying to literally write it out in your own words. I think that's really helpful because it, you're filtering it through your brain and it increases comprehension. I think that's a really powerful way to do it. So that's a, a caution as well. Okay, so here's some interesting thoughts on this. And hopefully that's very helpful. And so let me just kind of end with this. I know that some of you are listening to this and maybe you got some pushbacks. So some of you hear this and you say, I get what you're saying. Sounds clear. Sounds like something. But I don't think I'm actually going to do what you're talking about at all. I don't think I'm actually going to pursue that. And why? Well, there's some pushbacks. So let's just talk about those real quick. Here's number one. Some of you might be saying, I don't got time. It's just, I just don't have time right now. And I hear what you're saying and maybe one day, but I just don't have time for that. And, and so let me just say on this one, remember, this is a pattern. And so I would just say, start somewhere and then grow into it. Here's a really helpful way to start. You actually don't even need to make time. You don't even need to make time for this. You can actually start by just repurposing some of the time you already have. What if you repurpose those moments of solitude that you already have in your life? I love the way that, uh, that one writer, Richard Foster, put it in his book, Celebration of Disciplines. He said, what are some steps into solitude? He said, the first thing that we can do is to take advantage of the little solitudes that fill our day. Consider the solitude of those early morning moments in bed before the family awakes. Think of the solitude of a morning cup of coffee before beginning the workday. There is solitude of the bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic during the free rush hour. Slip outside just before bed and taste the silent night. These tiny snatches of time are often lost to us. What a pity. They could and, sh and should be redeemed. There are times for inner quiet, for reorienting our lives like a compass needle. There are little moments that help us be genuinely present where we are. I love what he says. He says, why don't you just start by repurposing the little moments of solitude you already have, that morning cup of coffee. One of the things I say a lot is this, really helpful. What if you made your first cup of coffee with Jesus? How about that? What if, super simple. What if your first cup of coffee was with Jesus? What if the first voice you listened to in the morning wasn't the voice of the news networks or the radio show host? What if it was Jesus? What if it was God? What could that do in your life? What if you, some of you, what if you repurposed your drive time? Because let's be honest, drive time is usually mental dead space anyway, isn't it? Usually, you always have like half a song stuck in your head. You're like, no, I'm a single ladies, no, I'm a single ladies. Da, na, 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 na. Like, we do, we're doing nothing. And so what if we just said, I'm going to redeem that. I'm going to use that. I'm going to listen to the Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to use that to interact with my father. You can, you can have accessibility to God in those places. Some of you might be saying, I, I don't want, I can't do it. This is for spiritual giants, man. And you got to understand, like, you guys must all be like spiritual black belts for talking about this. I'm just like a novice, and I'm just getting started. And, man, this is, just, this is just for heavyweights. And can I just tell you, that is not true. That is not true. One of my biggest fears in doing this series was that we would come across as if we knew what we were talking about and as if we had this mastered because we don't. I don't have this mastered. 
We're all learning to grow in this. I would just encourage you, the old axiom, you guys have heard this said before, if anything is worth doing, it is worth doing poorly. And so some of you are like, I'm afraid I'm gonna do this poorly. Do it poorly. If it's worth doing, do it poorly. Start somewhere. Some of you are like, I don't follow Jesus though, so I probably shouldn't do this. Nope, I think you should. If you are a person that is investigating Christ, listen to me, I triple dog dare you to do this. Carve out some time and here's what I challenge you to do. Read through the gospel of John and pray. Pray this, God, if you're real, show me. I just triple dog dare you to do it. I just do. All right, this next one. This seems too much like a checklist. Some of you might be saying, this sounds inorganic. This, this sounds inauthentic. I don't, it just sounds like it's too much of a checklist and I don't wanna be legalistic about it. And listen, I, I actually hear you on that. I actually really understand that because there is, a, there is a proclivity to make this a checklist. And that is unfortunate because that's not the heart. This is not, this is not about getting a meal ticket. This is not about earning anything. This is not about God loves me more if I do this and he loves me less if I don't. None of that is true. So this is not about earning God's love, but I will tell you, this is about attaching to the vine and growing closer to God. If you do this, God won't love you anymore, but I can tell you this much, you will be closer to him. You will be, you just will be. And if Jesus depended on this, I think that's all the reason more why we should as well. Some of you might be saying, I don't like to be alone. Like this, honestly, this whole conversation scares me because I know that if I get alone, that means that there are gonna be certain things that I don't wanna think about that I am purposely trying to avoid that are gonna come to surface. And I think quite honestly, if that's the case, that probably just emphasizes the reason you need to do this all the more. It's because your father in heaven probably wants to reveal certain things to you. Some of you are like, I'm afraid to be alone. Well, first off, you're not alone, you're with Jesus, so that's great. But even then, if you find yourself afraid to be in those moments with Christ, I think that's worth digging into. Why is that? I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He wrote a book called Life Together, and he has a chapter that's called The Day Together, and then he has another chapter called The Day Alone. And in The Day Alone, here's what he writes. He says, let him who cannot be alone be aware of community, and let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound pitfalls and perils. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings, and one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. I think what he's saying is good, is you need both. We need solitude so that we can be in community fruitfully, and we need community so we can be in solitude safely. You gotta have both of these things, which is why next week we're talking about this idea of community. If you're with people all the time and you never get to be alone with your father, it's gonna create a shallowness within you. If you're alone all the time and you never spend time with people, you're gonna get real weird. You're probably gonna buy a bunch of cats and you're gonna start thinking crazy stuff. And so you need both of those things. We need both, which is why next week we're talking about the other side, which is community. That's the band to come up. And as they do, I wanna end with just one final quote that I think summarizes the heart of everything we're trying to say. And it's this right here. Here's the quote, it comes from A.J. Sherrill. Every moment of every day, the most significant reality in the entire universe is the radical availability of God's presence. God is available. And the question is, are you? Are you? making yourself available to be with him. Imagine what it could look like in your life if this became a pattern. Imagine what it would look like. Imagine the fruit that it could bear in your life if you made this a pattern to be with God. I think that's what he wants for us. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, I just want to say thank you that you have come not just to give your life, but to show us how to live. And thank you that you've given us this pattern of solitude. And that as we emulate that and as we try to pursue you in that, Jesus, we believe that it will lead to life change. That as we prioritize a relationship with you and hear from you, that that would cause our lives to transform and to change. That we'd be the people that you've called us to be. And we understand that the transformation that you want in us is not something that we can accomplish on our own. We can't do that. We have to rely on you to do that. But we also know that we can position ourselves in certain ways so we can hear from you and we can grow in you. And so I pray that you would help us to pursue this pattern and that it would change us. And we pray it in Jesus' name.